Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here, as always, with John Mitchell. We're going to be looking at the 2020 season because we are seeing more and more teams return to campus, and we're likely going to see football in some format this fall. So, you know, let's look at the odds as we see them, and we're going to dive in and look at those team, you know, those title contenders that might be the most overrated, and then also looking at some dark horse playoff contenders that aren't really gaining much steam yet. And then finally, in our final segment, we wanted to do something fun, as we always like to do. And we figure, you know, college football isn't just for the human fans. Uh, We want to talk a bit about how our pets relate to college football Saturdays. So before we dive in, how are you doing this week, John? I'm doing good. Excited to actually ramp up and start talking about the 2020 season. Um... Enough, I guess we've done a lot of speculating over how it's going to look and everything, and I think we're both kind of ready to just gear up and attack what we hope's going to be a fun college football season. And if anything changes from there, then we'll update uh, as it goes. But until then, we're going to proceed as as the season's going to happen as normal. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're as I mentioned, more teams are returning to campus and. <laughs> Something's going to happen. So, as John mentioned, uh, beginning with our July 1st episode, we'll be starting to dive into our preview coverage that you might remember from last summer, uh, going conference by conference, also taking a look at group of five races, taking a look at FCS races, uh, getting into historical black colleges and universities, and that black national championship that that we see at the Celebration Bowl every year. Uh, So, yeah, we have a lot of fun stuff coming up on the docket. And uh, until then, we're going to continue to go on through some fun topics in June as well. Uh, Some some fun, fun topics coming down the pipeline in general. But let's dive into this first topic. You know, you're the one who who pitched this to me as something we should really look at, John, and I think it's a great idea. You know, which title contender might be the most overrated? And, you know, how do we even consider what overrated is? So I, I want your thoughts and your first team on that. Yeah, you know, it's it's an exciting time. I think this is the probably the most difficult season to handicap because we didn't get to see a lot of spring practices for most teams. Some teams didn't get any spring practices in before the coronavirus shut everything down. So, you know, I I find it interesting and and, and difficult to kind of highlight some of these teams because there's so much we don't know. You're still seeing a lot of transfers that are taking place because you usually see a post-spring ball defection of sorts when people start to realize they're further down the depth chart than they initially thought they might be. But now people are coming back to campus and they're starting to have those playing time conversations with their coaches and you're seeing some transfers start to ramp up. So there still could be several, um, you know, big names out there that could be on the move for next season or beyond. So it's difficult in that vein. But when I look at title contenders, I'm looking at the, you know, the teams that are probably in the top 10 to start the season or teams that are going to be there. Those are the teams you really think. I mean, I think when you're talking about it, the most commonly brought up title contenders coming into the season, unsurprisingly, is, you know, your typical um, guys, right? You got Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama. Those have been the three that have been the most, you know, ballyhooed so far this offseason. Obviously, Oklahoma's been talked about, Florida and Georgia and the SEC East and stuff like that. But those have been the big three that it seemed. And that was really the talk at the beginning of last season, too, coming into the year. So the first team I wanted to talk about who I think might not be a legitimate contender is a big one. It's Ohio State. Um, And I think that might catch people off guard because they're, you know, obviously they came – they probably should have beat Clemson last year in the Fiesta Bowl. They made several really bad mistakes in that fourth quarter. You know, J.K. Dobbins dropped an easy touchdown pass that probably would have sealed the deal for the Buckeyes. And then Justin Fields threw that interception in the end zone on what looked like a, 
a championship or a, you know a championship clinching drive to get to the title game to play LSU, and then who knows what would happen from there. So I, I look at the Buckeyes this year, and they're going to be probably second or third in the in the polls in the preseason. Clemson's probably a clear cut number one, and then Alabama and Ohio State are probably jockeying for position from there. So. When you look at it, and what scares me about Ohio State is they remind me a lot of last season's Alabama. I think a lot of eggs are in one basket for the Buckeyes this year, a lot like it was with Alabama last year. Alabama had some glaring defensive concerns last year that a lot of people overlooked because they had Tua Tagovailoa, because they had Najee Harris, because they had four legitimate weapons at wide receiver. And you look at the Buckeyes this year, obviously Justin Fields is one of the top contenders for the Heisman Trophy, as he should be. He was terrific in his first season as a starter last year. He threw 41 touchdown passes and only three interceptions and added, you know, almost 500 yards rushing and 10 touchdowns to go along with it. So he's one of the best players in college football. But what happens if something happens to Fields? Behind him, there's a lot of question marks. You know, they've got a senior in Gunner Hope behind him who's a transfer from Kentucky, but there's not much that we've seen from him to inspire confidence that he could step up and fill any type of void left by Fields. And then after that, you've got underclassmen who haven't really seen much action. Um, and when I look at the Buckeyes and when I compare them to Alabama, it's really defensively where I have the concern because they lost a lot of talent on defense. Namely, you know, Chase Young's not going to be there to go out there and get you know, 15, 16 sacks like he's done the last couple of seasons. That's a big loss. Losing Malik Harrison in the middle of the defense, he had 16 and a half tackles for loss last year. That's big. They lost two of their top three cornerbacks with Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett, both being first-round picks in the NFL draft. So that puts a lot on, you know, a, a fairly new defensive backfield, a fairly new defensive line and you're talking about Ohio State so you're not talking about scrubs that are coming in there this isn't a team that has to rebuild they reload with four and five star prospects who are going to make impacts but you know I still worry because Ohio State as good as their offense was last year it was their defense that really led the team they were arguably the best defense in college football last year they gave up the least amount of explosive plays in the nation they ranked number one in total defense number one in passing defense I mean, this was a great defensive team last year. So it'll be interesting who's going to fill the void left by Chase Young in particular. He had 21 tackles for loss last year. You know, and if they're not able to get after the quarterback as well as they were last year, is a brand new secondary going to be able to hold up in the back end against a really difficult schedule? Because Ohio State, I mean, we'll find out a lot about the Buckeyes in, in early September when they travel to Eugene to play Oregon if that game goes as according to plan. They also have to go to Penn State in late October, who's their biggest challenger, in my opinion, in the Big Ten this year. So, I don't know. I, I think there's a few too many question marks for me to tag Ohio State as a legitimate national title contender in the preseason. Yeah, you know, I think Ohio State is a team I would definitely put on the list as well. You know, the odds makers are putting them anywhere from 3-1 to one to 7-2 to two odds. It's... You know, they're getting a huge benefit of the doubt. But, you know, I think pointing out the defensive issues or, you know, the defensive inexperience, at least, is, is really notable. Bill Connolly always puts out his returning production for the upcoming season. And Ohio State is 114th in returning defensive production out of 130 FBS teams. And so... You know, I think you're right. This could very well be the year that Penn State finally catches up with the Buckeyes. It, it really could be. And I know there's plenty of people here where I'm at in State College that'll love to hear that and really hope it transpires. Um, and at the same time, I think it's funny how much love another Big Ten East team has gotten as well. Uh, the Michigan Wolverines have been an odd darling of the odds makers. And I think... You know, they're probably going to come in as a top 15 team next year, I'm guessing. That's probably, you know, I haven't done final projections yet of preseason rankings, but that's probably where I would project pollsters putting them, is somewhere around 10 to 15. And so, you know, it's certainly a place to jump up and, and be a college football playoff contender, as we've seen in recent years. You can, you can start at that level and jump quickly. 
But they're 125th out of 130 teams in returning production. 119th in offense, 110th in defense. So you don't even have one side of the ball or the other that gives you at least some kind of hope. They're they're green on both sides. And I think, as you mentioned, with the loss of spring practices um, for incoming players, players who redshirted and might be getting their first serious action... You know, all of that kind of conspires, and I think that's why I'm more inclined than ever this year, with everything that's happened with the pandemic, to think that teams that have more experience are going to be able to get the jump. And Michigan just isn't it. You know, Jim Harbaugh may be a great coach. He's come out in solidarity with his players um, and the community around police brutality and, you know, targeting uh, blacks, indigenous people, and people of color in the community. But, you know, you can be the best coach in the world. You can be the best guy in the world. And if you're playing with green players that you didn't get the opportunity to train up in the spring, it it, it could come back and bite them, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be especially tough for teams who are turning over with new quarterbacks. Because that's, you know, obviously the most difficult and most important position on each team. And Michigan certainly got to do that to replace Shea Patterson. Obviously, you know, he was caught the ire of a lot of Michigan fans the last couple of years because he didn't quite live up to the hype that they had for him coming in from Ole Miss. But, you know, I think that still rather have someone who has the wealth of experience that he has and having to turn over to, you know, talented guys like either Dylan McCaffrey or Joe Milton, whoever comes in at at quarterback for those guys. But, no, I, I agree. I think the thing about Michigan is they might only be 15th in the preseason, but if they go and beat Washington on the road to open the season, they're going to jump into the top 10, if not even higher than that, off of the strength of that one win. And, you know, you look at their schedule as well. It, look, it looked like last year was going to be their opportunity to beat Ohio State because they got them at home. And, I mean, it just wasn't even competitive. And now they've got to go to the Buckeyes this year. Well, I don't think Ohio State – at this point, to me, looks like a legit national title contender. I still think they look a lot better than the Wolverines look right now. Oh, yeah. You know, I I think, you know, mentioning the Buckeyes as we did bleeding out of the gate isn't to say that they're probably not still the Big Ten favorites. You know, Penn State obviously has that opportunity to jump up, and people are seeing something in Michigan that I'm certainly not, but... I, you know, I, I think, you know, whether or not we think they're overrated as a national title contender doesn't mean necessarily that this team isn't still going to have a double-digit win season. Michigan, on the other hand, I don't think is that team. So, Yeah, I agree completely. Well, how about another one, John? Who else have you been thinking of on this? How about another blue blood that's been a playoff mainstay the last few years? And it's Oklahoma, and it's another one that's largely due to some turnover, particularly at quarterback. You know, there's no steadying hand of a Jalen Hurts or a Kyler Murray or Baker Mayfield. Spencer Radler is one of the highest-rated quarterback recruits in the country in 2019. He's got a ton of talent, but he didn't get to go through spring practices this year. They're going, in the very least, we're going to have condensed summer and fall camps heading into next season. So that's going to be really difficult for him to really figure it out as a redshirt freshman. We've obviously seen young quarterbacks burst on the scene and, and do very well, but none have had this kind of tumultuous offseason to deal with and been able to do that. So it's it'll be really interesting. You talk about returning production um, in Conley's rankings. Oklahoma's 103rd in returning production on offense. They're 82nd nationally in total returning production. So they have a lot of turnover. And much like Ohio State, obviously, the Sooners return don't really turn over. You know, they don't have to rebuild. They have a ton of talent. But they also lost some defensive guys. Their defense really made some strides last year under Alex Grinch. They returned nine starters from that team. But losing Kenneth Murray in the middle, I think, is one of the bigger losses in college football. He was a monster in the middle of the Sooners' defense last year. He led the team in tackles and tackles for loss. He was an all-Big 12 first-team guy. So it'll be really interesting what they do to replace that dude in the middle that they really lacked. So, And then obviously losing Jalen Hurts is big. 
You know, Trey Sermon transferred to Ohio State in the offseason, so they lost him. C.D. Lamb's not going to be easily replaced, though Oklahoma always has really good receivers. So I, I, I think it's interesting. I think the Big 12 as a whole is a really interesting race, and we'll talk about that more when we get to the to the Big 12 preview. But I don't see a legitimate playoff team, I don't think, in the Big 12 this year, which makes it for a fascinating race. So you've got Oklahoma, obviously. You've got Texas, Oklahoma State, Iowa State, maybe even TCU. I think it's one of the more fascinating races in college football. I'm really looking forward to diving more into that later on. But my second team is Oklahoma. I don't think they'll be back in the playoff this year. And based on their last couple performances in the playoff, I don't think many people are going to be disappointed to see the Sooners left out. Yeah, you won't see many tears shed outside of Norman or outside of the Sooner State. I, I don't think they're... At the same time, like, I'm looking at the odds as they currently sit with this team, and they're, you know, the sportsbooks have them anywhere from 20 to 1 uh, through 25 to 1. And I, you know, I look at that and I think that's probably a safe place to have them. I, you know, I think they're properly rated by the sportsbooks, and... At the same time, I think you're right. The media is probably, you know, the media and the coaches will probably have them much higher based on past history than they might necessarily want to be. Well, you know, I, I'm just going to continue projecting on, and let's talk about another team that was in the college football playoff last year. I mean, it's the team that won the whole damn thing. Well, you know, the LSU Tigers come in, their their odds are given anywhere from 9-1 to one through 15-1. to one. Uh, pretty consistently projected to, you know, be pretty damn good. But only three teams return less. But only three teams in the country return less production on both sides of the ball than the Tigers. You know, they're obviously they're starting a new quarterback now that that Heisman winner Joe Burrow is off to the NFL. But, you know, Joe Brady's also gone. Dave Aranda's also gone. Um, you, you know, they, they're 128th in returning offensive production, but they're also 92nd in returning defensive production. But the one red flag I have most, John, is the fact that Bo Pelini takes over as the new defensive coordinator for Aranda. And if you know anything about his career at Nebraska, everybody, it feels like LSU is due for four losses this year. <laughs> so, so yeah, LSU is a team that, you know, obviously they're going to be rated well because, you know, until you beat the champs, they're the champs. But I, I, I think they've lost too much. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about losing Joe Burrow, which is huge, and they've got to break in a new quarterback in Miles Brennan. Um, and Miles Brennan could be really good next year, and he still would come nowhere close to the season Joe Burrow had. Joe Burrow had arguably the greatest single season a quarterback's ever had in college football history. So there's going to be drop back from that, and the margin for error is going to be much, much smaller without a guy like that playing. Um, but, you, you know, you mentioned defense, but also how do they replace Clyde Edwards-Elair? He was kind of the jack-of-all-trades running back for them last year. Um, you know, he led the team in rushing with 1,400 yards, but he also caught 55 passes out of the backfield. So he's a huge weapon in their passing game, and they've got a lot of inexperienced guys behind him at running back. You know, Tyron, uh, Tyrion Davis-Price, Chris Curry, John Emery, all talented guys, but none proven like Edwards-Elair was. They obviously have the best receiver in the country in Jamar Chase, so that'll take some burden off Brennan. Then, like you said, you look defensively, and their defense wasn't great last year. This wasn't your typical dominant LSU defense. They were middling in a lot of categories, and that was, you know, covered by the fact that they had a historically great offense. Yep. And they're not going to have that historically great offense this year, no matter which way you slice it. They might be very good on offense this year. They're not going to be what they were last year. And losing Kalevon Chase on... Uh, the pass rush special, specialist is going to be huge. They also lost a lot in the defensive secondary as well. Obviously, they have Derek Stingley back there, who's arguably the best corner in college football as a true sophomore. But they lost Christian Fulton. They lost Thorpe Award-winning safety Grant Delpit. You know, so I think there's a lot of turnover. 
I would guess expectations, if I was an LSU fan, would be more around winning nine games. It would be a really successful 2020 season. I don't really see them um, sniffing an SEC or an SEC title or a bid, second straight bid to the playoff. Yeah, like I said, nine and four, everybody. It smells perfect for the, the way this team is configured right now, right down to Bo Pelini. Yeah, and I mean, look, they got a difficult schedule, too. They got Texas early on. The Longhorns are obviously looking for revenge in Baton Rouge. They've got to go to Florida in October. And they finish the season at Auburn and at Texas A&M, not to mention, obviously, the November 7th date with Alabama, who's going to be looking for revenge as well. So that's a very difficult schedule. I think 9-3 and three in the regular season would be a really big accomplishment for Ed Orgeron. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think it would be just as great a coaching accomplishment as last season's national championship when you're really, you know, grading it against the curve that's set in place. Well, I'll throw out my last team to you before we go into this, John. Notre Dame always comes into the season as one of those preseason darlings. It, it's just, you know, the Golden Domer mystique seems to take over. The odds makers have them pretty consistently somewhere between 25 and 1, or 25 to 1 and 35 to 1. But just like some of these other teams we've talked about, they're 83rd out of 130 FBS teams in returning production, right there behind the Oklahoma team we talked about recently. Um, and they, you know, they're outside the top 100 in returning defensive production, which, as we all know, defense is, has traditionally been what's won championships here. And, you know, having a prolific offense is great, but if you get in a firefight with teams, you know, if it's an absolute shootout, it becomes a crapshoot at that point. You know, you're not guaranteeing yourself victory like you do with sound defense. Are you losing sound? No. Oh, you just were going to your headphones. Like, it kind of looked... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was just fiddling. Cool. I'm just making sure. But, yeah, so I think, you know, that part for the Irish is is a little nerve-wracking in terms of what they actually have returning. I think a lot of it is going to hinge on Ian Book taking that next leap for people. But at the same time, if the season doesn't go off 100% as, you know scheduled long, long ago, you know, if the coronavirus leads to a truncated season of some sort or conference-only schedules or whatnot, that could seriously hurt the independent fighting Irish chances. So I'm a little hesitant to put the fighting Irish in one of those contender, you know, spaces like the odds makers and like I'm sure the polls are going to in the preseason. Yeah, it, it's interesting because Brian Kelly's had such a great run at Notre Dame, but it doesn't even feel like it, you know, because there's, he's such he's burdened with such expectations in South Bend because Notre Dame, despite the fact that Notre Dame hasn't been what they once were in quite some time, you know, they haven't quite gotten over the hump that their fans expect. And I don't know if that's necessarily fair because this isn't your father's fighting Irish team anymore, you know. But if you look at it statistically – this is their best three-year run since the early 90s. You know, they've won 10-plus games the last three seasons, best record they've had since the three-year run between 91 and 93 when Lou Holtz was still the coach at Notre Dame. So they've been great. They just haven't been quite – or they've been really good. They just haven't quite been great to be able to break through and actually, you know, win a national title or really be competitive in a playoff game. Um, but – this is, like you said, they, they've got a lot to replace defensively. I think Ian Book's really good, but he was kind of mediocre early on last season. He really turned it on down the stretch, but it was against a lot of mediocre competition. The probably best I saw Notre Dame look last year was in the bowl game, the Camping World Bowl, when they blew out Iowa State. And that was a really impressive victory for me that I think sets them up for what could be a good season. I don't think they're a title contender but another 10-win season, getting four straight 10-win seasons would certainly be nothing to sneeze at. Oh, no. And, again, you know, it's one of those things where they're going to get the bull bump early from that Camping World Bowl performance, and they're going to be highly rated. And we're going to see these odds continue to shift up in those first few weeks, depending on who they get to play and how much they get to play. 
But I think you're right about Book. I've never been, you know, you hear him touted as a preseason Heisman, you know, hopeful. And I don't see that necessarily. And I think the thing also to keep in mind about Notre Dame is it's now been three decades since they last won a national championship. So you're absolutely right. The outsized expectations that come in South Bend are... Always, you're always going to be graded against the new Rockney curve whenever you take that job. And, you know, if you can avoid the new, new Rockney curve, you're going to get the Frank Leahy curve or the Era Parsevian curve. It's, it, it's inevitable. When you've had that many great coaches roll through your hallowed halls, it, it, it just works out that way. But Brian Kelly, as you mentioned, he's right up there with, you know, maybe not you know, uh, Rockney himself, and he hasn't had nearly the national championship success of Leahy. But if you look at it in a modern context, I mean, he's done as much as Lou Holtz did while he was there sans the championship itself. But he's put Notre Dame into position to compete for it in the system as it now exists several times. So... Yeah, I think he's underrated, which is surprising to say as a head coach at Notre Dame. So my last team is Florida. Um, a lot of I was really hyped on Florida last year. I actually picked them to win the SEC East. They're getting a lot of traction as a potential SEC East champion this year, and you can see why they've got a lot of talent back. Uh, they're kind of middle of the pack in terms of returning production, but they really seem to make some strides. Um, last season, they were great down the stretch. Uh, of the year. Their only losses came at LSU and then in the neutral site rivalry game with Georgia. So two losses that you can't really fault them for. But can they get over that hump this year is the question. They get LSU at home, which is big, and then obviously still the neutral site against Georgia. They can navigate those two games, then you know Florida's probably going to win the East and probably be right in the thick of the national title race. I'm just not quite convinced as everyone else seems to be, that Kyle Trask is the quarterback he looked like in times last season. I think a lot. I think he caught a lot of people off guard because I don't think much was expected of him coming in. Well, now he's got a target on his back, right, because he was good last season um, coming in for the injured Felipe Franks. And, you know, he's got a stranglehold on the job, enough that Franks transferred to Fayetteville to play in Arkansas. So I still, I still wonder if Florida's good enough up front on the offensive line in particular. That was a really big struggle for them the last couple of years. Um, and they've only got two or, or three returning starters, so they've got to replace two guys. Can they really take that jump? Because they really struggled, particularly on the ground. Like, they ranked 107th in college football last season rushing, and they lost LaMichael Ryan, who was very good at making something out of the nothing that was typically in front of him up front. So it'll be interesting to see how they replace him. Um, Damian Pierce is a rising junior. He's a good player, but I don't know if he's quite Piran's level or not. So I still think Florida's not quite talented or deep enough up front to be a legitimate contender. I still have them behind Georgia, and they should be careful too because I think Tennessee is really rising up in the East. And they've got a late September road game in Knoxville that could really decide who is Georgia's main competition this year. I think that's interesting. And I think, you know, you see Florida there. I think, you know, the odds makers have them probably as the fifth or sixth best team in the country, kind of bouncing Georgia and Florida alongside one another. And they're middle of the road in returning production. 61st overall, it's, you know, 67th overall out of 130 FBS teams in offensive production and 55th in, in returning defensive production. So, you know, Dan Mullen has a decent amount coming back, but you're absolutely right. So much hinges on the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, and it always has. Um, and until they can get over that hump and Mullen can take down Kirby Smart, you know, I, I buyer beware with Florida. I, I'm with you there. Well, on that note, everybody, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to shift gears, and we're going to look at some of those dark horses that aren't getting the attention they deserve. So stay tuned. 
All right, everybody, we're back from our break. We're all refueled. Let's dive right in. And we are going to look now at some of those teams that, you know, they could be dark horse contenders in the college football playoff race, but for some reason or another, uh, they don't seem to be gaining as much traction, whether it's in, you know, the presumptive polls or it's in terms of, you know, their the Vegas odds around them or whatnot. So let's look at some of these dark horses and these teams that we think might be able to emerge forward, John. And, you know, I always throw it to you first. So I'm going to throw one out there first instead. And this is going to sound like an absolute homer pick for everybody. I'm sure um, as somebody who grew up in the Badger state, but I think that Wisconsin has a very real chance here. You know, the odds makers have them very consistently somewhere between 50 and 60 to 1 in, in, in where they have them there. So they're really a secondary contender. I wouldn't be surprised if they came in somewhere in the top 15 in the polls in the country. Um, but, you know, they're 34th out of 130 FBS teams in returning production. The offense definitely has some work to be done, but... One of the best defenses in the country returns a hell of a lot of production. You know, they're 17th in defensive returning production. And I think what also helps this situation here is you've got some solid non-conference tests there. You know, App State, the, the Sun Belt champion, presents a prime group of five tests. Uh, Notre Dame. Obviously, the game as now is scheduled at Lambeau Field, which is a an incredible marquee, uh, quote unquote, neutral site opportunity um, that will get plenty of people from both sides. Honestly, you know, knowing Notre Dame fans and how they travel as well, so I think that presents a really fun chance to open pollsters' eyes. Um, but the thing that's most important to me about why I think Wisconsin has that chance, and it could be something that also dooms them, but I think that's why it's important they have App State and Notre Dame on the non-conference schedule. They don't have to play Ohio State or Penn State in the regular season. Uh, they obviously take on Michigan, um, who's probably the third best test out of that, that division. And so you avoid both the Buckeyes and the Nittany Lions until the championship game. We get a situation similar to a couple of years ago when Wisconsin played the, the Buckeyes as a 12-0 Big Ten West champion. And if they win that game this year, and as we talked about in the previous segment, Ohio State does have some issues coming in, as do the other teams that they could potentially play. Wisconsin has that real chance. So I think at 50 to 1 odds, 60 to 1 odds, you got a solid buy in there. Yeah, I, Wisconsin's certainly a factor in the Big Ten race. Uh, I'm not quite as high on them as, as you are, I don't think. Just mainly losing Jonathan Taylor is such a big blow for that offense. Uh, you know, Wisconsin's never lacking in talented running backs. That's never been a legitimate concern for them. Um, they obviously have to replace. Uh, three starters on the offensive line. That's also rarely an actual issue for the Badgers because they, you know, corn feed all these young kids from an early age and groom them to be Wisconsin linemen in that state. So cheese makes maybe a difference. That's not as big of a concern. Uh, I, I do think more will be on Jack Cohen this year, so I'll be interested to see if he can take that next step as well. And if he can't, maybe Graham Merch steps in and does it for him. Uh, so I don't know. I think maybe Wisconsin's a year away from being a legitimate playoff contender. Uh, but, but I, you know, it's, it's foolish to discount the Badgers because they feel like they are discounted in the preseason year after year. And at the end of the year, they're winning 10 games and playing in a new year six bowl like last year. Exactly. So, so go Bucky. All right. It's to you, John. Who do you have as your first team on the list? So I stick in the Big Ten, and this isn't a massive dark horse, I get, I guess. But when I'm looking at the teams top to bottom, to me, Penn State should be the Big Ten favorite, not Ohio State. So I actually like the Nittany Lions to win the Big Ten. And I think they're a team that, you know, if you win the Big Ten as, as good as the conference is top to bottom, you can pretty much cash your playoff ticket unless, you know, you lose a couple non-conference games. 
that you're not expected to lose. So I really like Penn State this year. I like the fact that they've got a returning quarterback in Sean Clifford. I think they have arguably the best running back tandem in the Big Ten, maybe in the entire country, and Journey Brown and Noah Kane. Those are just two really talented guys in the backfield. It'll be interesting to see how they replace KJ Hamler at receiver. You know, they've got some talent. Obviously, they've got a really good tight end and Pratt and Pat Fryermuth. And then John Dotson at receiver is very talented, but they definitely need some more players to step up. And they've got some defensive guys they need to replace. They're middle of the pack, too, when it comes to returning talent. But they also have, to me, arguably one of the best players in the entire country on defense in Michael Parsons, who I think could be a dark horse Heisman candidate. He could have that kind of impact on Penn State's defense this year. And they probably will ask him to carry a lot of the burden because they'll need him, too. So I really like this Penn State team. Uh, I also really like that they get Ohio State at home. I think that's big. If they can navigate the trip to Michigan in early October, you know, they get got, they get Ohio at home, Ohio State at home, Michigan State at home. So, I mean, I, I think their schedule is favorable in that vein. And really when it came down to deciding for me whether it was Ohio State or Penn State, I'd probably favor the conference. It came down to which of those teams plays the other at home this year. And Penn State has the benefit of drawing Ohio State in Happy Valley. If home field advantage actually means anything this year, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I think that's still a big question mark that we all have hanging there. But but going off the information we have and the history that we know, I think that's a, a sound choice. And again, um, I think bringing up Brown and Kane is a huge part of that because that that tandem in the backfield, is it's a beast. And so... I, you know, I, I think plenty of people here uh, are going to be happy in State College here in, in Central PA over over the next year, the way this season goes. I, I, I'm with you there. I, and I think it's crazy that they're only getting 25 to 1 odds at best, and that several sports books are, are putting 50 to 1 odds on the Nittany Lions uh, as of, you know, early June. I think that's crazy, but it definitely offers you a great value pick there if you're so inclined to bet. Yeah, I mean, Athlon Sports just released their annual college football magazine. They had Penn State ranked fifth. So if you can get a team that they're projecting to be a top five team at 50 to 1 odd, you'd be crazy not to put a little bit down. Oh, hell yeah. In that same vein, we've been talking about teams that, you know, I, I, I think if we talked in the last segment about returning production and, and that being really key to this season, I think, you know, I think one team that really stands out to me that has long odds as well is USC. Obviously, I think Clay Helton is coaching for his job right now. It, it, it's been one of those situations where he's been a dead man walking the past couple of years, and somehow he continues to get that reprieve from the, the AD. But Mike Bones there now, it, it, this is pretty much his last chance, I think. So you got a motivated coaching staff because everybody gets the can if they don't do what's expected. And you've got the fifth most experienced team in all of FBS coming back. You know, you've got a top 25 offense in terms of returning experience. And you have a top 10 defense with the seventh most experienced defensive unit coming back. If they do play Alabama, you get a test right out of the gate that shows us how serious a threat they are. But even if they have only that one loss... And I think if they play Alabama close in that game and lose and then run the table the rest of the way, they're still a contender to make the college football playoff. Uh, Especially in a Pac-12 South where Utah is the least experienced team coming back in all of FBS football. And everybody else has their own question marks as well. Yeah, there's really no excuse this year for Clay Helton. I think a large part of the reason that he was retained is because, you know, the athletic department saw how much talent they've got coming back this year. Continuity probably made the most sense for the Trojans to compete uh, for not just the Pac-12, but potentially a birth in the college football playoff. So, I, you know, as an Alabama fan, I've been sweating the season opener because I think this USC team is really good. You know, they've got Keaton Slovis back at quarterback. He was a revelation for them last year as a freshman. 
They've got probably the deepest and most talented core of receivers in the country, just a ton of guys who can make plays. Even after losing Michael Pittman, you still got Amon Ross, St. Brown, Tyler Bonds, Drake London, just a ton of talent at the receiver position. And they return 10 starters on defense. So obviously defense is where they've got to make the strides. They only ranked 78th in total defense last year, so that number is going to have to come up if they want to compete. Um, but, I mean, you're absolutely right. They'll get a good me- measuring stick right away. Even a loss to Alabama isn't a death blow for them. You know, the last time they opened the season and lost to Alabama, they ended up winning the Rose Bowl that same year. So if that could be a good omen for the Trojans. I'm sure they would take that in a heartbeat, winning the Pac-12. Uh, obviously, it won't be the Rose Bowl this year unless they make the college football playoff, but you know, a conference title, even if they come short of the uh, college football playoff, I think a conference title and a, a New Year's Six Bowl game would be huge. And it might take a conference title to keep Clay Helton around, because I don't know that just winning the Pac-12 South is going to be enough. Yeah, I think it would take, you know, an undefeated winning the Pac-12 South, losing to, you know, perhaps an undefeated Pac-12 North champion and, in, you know, in a tense, close, down-to-the-wire matchup where they just lose a heartbreaker, you know, last possession or something, and then go on to kick ass in the New Year's Six Bowl game. You know, I think a 13-1 and team that doesn't win the Pac-12 probably still keeps Clay Helton his job, but anything less than that, adios. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So I'll stick in the Pac-12, just more on the interest of continuity, and I'm going to be a homer for you on this end. I'm going to say Oregon. Um, Oregon's going to be a top 10 or 15 team in the preseason. I'm not sure what their odds are currently uh, to win the national title, but I just really like the Ducks. I'm a huge Mario Cristobal guy. We've talked about this many times. You know, Oregon won 12 games last year. I've had this conversation with you. I think they're on the precipice of a very – long and thorough domination of the Pac-12, just if you look at how much better they're recruiting than every other team in their conference. Cristobal and his staff is running circles around every other Pac-12 team. So I think the gap in talent is starting to get wider and wider in favor of the Ducks. And, you know, his first big recruiting class, they're now sophomores, you know, led by Kayvon Thibodeau, who I think is going to have a monster season. He was great in spot relief as a freshman, you know, He didn't start for the Ducks a ton of games last year, but when he came on, he made a massive impact, and he's probably poised to have a monster season. He had nine sacks as a reserve last season, so what's he going to do as a full-time starter? He's obviously one of the most talented players in the country. They've got the best offensive lineman in the country in Panay Sewell. He was the Outland Trophy winner last year as a true sophomore. Uh, It all really comes down, you know, they've got good running backs too. Obviously, they got their top three runners back. It all comes down to how they replace Justin Herbert. Uh, Losing a first-round pick at quarterback is always difficult. He was always a steadying hand. And they've got some options. I think the favorite at this point is Tyler Show. Uh, He, or Tyler Shua, I should say. We just talked about this. Um, he uh, seems to have the inside track because he knows the system, but they also added Boston College grad transfer Anthony Brown in the offseason, who's got starting experience, so it'll be interesting how that battle goes. I would imagine Shu's got the, the advantage heading into fall camp. So I, I, if they can figure that point out, they've got a lot of production to replace on offense. They've got four new starters on a dominant offensive line, although Sewell is a nice anchor to begin on any offensive line with. Uh, I think they've got some talent at receivers led by Johnny Johnson. It all comes down to the quarterback. You know, they've got 81% of their production back on a defense that was pretty good last year as a top 25 overall defense. So that number could even go up this year. I think, you know, Andy Avalos did a fantastic job in his first season as the Ducks defensive coordinator. So it'll be interesting to see how they build on that. Uh, if the quarterback situation comes together, to me, Oregon's not just the easy Pac-12 favorite. I think they're going to end the Pac-12 drought and make the playoffs. I would certainly love to see it. The, the duck in me that bleeds green would love to see that. And I'm going to let you be the confident one for me on that, because I find when I get overconfident this time of year, we all know what happens. So so I'll let you play that role for me this year, John. Fair uh, enough. I, and I love it. So, uh, 
you know, last team you have out there. Um, I'm going to let you take the last one. Okay. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the Big 12 being such a wide-open, interesting race. Part of what makes the Big 12 interesting, like I said, is there doesn't seem like there's a clear-cut favorite in the preseason. Obviously, everybody wants to say it's Oklahoma, just because we're preconditioned to think that the Sooners are the best team in the conference, because they've dominated the Big 12 for so long. But if you look at their bedlam rivals, and you look at Oklahoma State, and what they bring back from a team that won eight and five last year, um, they're going to have a really good team in 2020. It would be disappointing if the Cowboys weren't a legitimate Big 12 contender. Um, I would at least pick them as a co-favorite with Oklahoma at this point. They are ninth in the country in returning production. They returned 75% of their offense and 86% of their production last season on defense. They actually returned 11 guys who have starting experience on their defense. And, you know, they got to replace a couple offensive linemen um, on offense. But all their major contributors at the skill positions are back. They brought back Chuba Hubbard, who had 2,000 yards rushing last year. Obviously, Spencer Sanders was showed flashes as a freshman. If he can make that sophomore jump, and he's obviously got a ton of talent to throw to. Tylen Wallace is one of the best receivers in the country. So bringing him and Hubbard both back to Stillwater this year is so big for them. Um, defensively, they've got to get better. They have the talent and the experience defensively, so there's no really real excuse for Jim Nolan's defense not to take a step forward this year. But they're going to score a lot of points, and if their defense can creep up from, you know, 75th to 80th like they've been, and they can jump into the top 50 defensively, then I think the Cowboys have a legitimate shot at winning the Big 12. And anytime you can win a Power 5 conference, you're going to be in the conversation when it comes to deciding who makes the 14 playoff. Oh, totally. And I think you're right that, that Chuba Hubbard's return makes this team a legitimate threat. The fact that the odds makers have them anywhere between 50 to 1 and 100 to 1 makes them a great value pick in that regard as well. Um, this isn't my final team, but I want to throw out there since we're talking about the Big 12. Now, I think TCU also has a case to be made. You know, they're only 60, 64th out of 130 teams in returning production, pretty much right in the middle of the road in both categories, 75th on offense, 51st on defense. But... You know, Gary Patterson always has a well-coached defense, you know, is always sound fundamentally. I think the fact that they have a fair amount returning on that side of the ball makes me excited for the Horned Frogs' potential. I mean, this is a team that lost six of their seven, you know, six of their seven losses last year were by a single score. They took Baylor to overtime. They lost to Oklahoma by only four points. This was a damn good Horned Frogs team that in many ways was snake-bitten throughout the season and just didn't get that one bounce they needed to, to pick up a couple more wins. But the team I want to throw out there to you is another one that's, you know, the long odds. You know, anywhere from 225 to 1 uh, to 250 to 1. So, obviously I'm talking about Virginia Tech right now. I think the Hokies, you know... This is the ACC Coastal. It's always a consistent mess. You know, seven different teams out of seven different members in that division have won it over the past seven years. Which means the cycle's ready to begin anew, and I think it's Virginia Tech's time to take it again. You know, they're sixth in the country in returning production, fifth on defense, which I think is really key as well. We continue to, you know, kind of harping on defense being critical. But I think the thing that's going to matter most here, kind of like I talked about with USC in that Alabama game, is Virginia Tech plays Penn State in Week 2. And I think we're really going to get an idea about both of those teams out of the gate right there. By early September, we'll know which one of those two that we have listed as a dark horse is, you know, I think that's kind of an elimination game of sorts for these dark horses. So... I think if Virginia Tech gets over that hurdle, those 225 to 1 odds look really good for them to at least put themselves in, in position to threaten Clemson for the ACC this year. I think that's interesting. I actually like another coastal team. I think Miami, and maybe that's foolish, but I love the addition of Derek King 
at quarterback. I think that's the one thing they've been missing. So I quickly wanted to touch on them, particularly when you look at they've probably got the best two bookend defensive ends in the country with Gregory Russo and Temple transfer Quincy Roche um, on that side of the ball. I mean, those are two guys who can really, really get after the quarterback. So those two guys rushing the passer, they should be good on defense as always. If De'Eric King can be the guy we saw two years ago in Houston, I think the Hurricanes have a real shot at um, maybe not challenging for the playoff, but I think I would say they're the coastal favorite um, in that vein. Fair enough. You know, I really want to see how life after Dan Enos goes before I, I say anything about the Hurricanes. So. But at the same time, can life really get worse than Dan Enos? Kane uh, no. stands sure as hell hope not. So... Um, on that note, you know, I think any one of these teams have a legitimate shot to step up. And, again, if you win a Power 5 conference, if you win it with zero or one loss, you got a real chance. So, on that note, let's take a quick break, everybody. When we come back, let's have a little fun and talk about our pets before we sign off for the week. Stay tuned. Alright everybody, welcome back to our last segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast. John and I have been talking about our pretenders and contenders for the 2020 college football season that may or may not happen as we would love it to, all normal and usual. But now we're going to shift focus because, you know, I think we tend to focus our Saturday attention on the television but I also recently got a dog. So back last December, December 11th specifically, so right after the end of the regular season, conveniently enough, I got myself a cute little puppy, two-year-old dog, uh, from the local local shelter. And, you know, she got the experience of, of bowl games, of, of, of postseason football, and, and watching me sit there for, you know, 12 hours a day. Uh, vegetating in front of the television, but I'm really interested to see how she manages my Saturdays once we get to the 2020 season. Um, this is something I've never really had to deal with, you know, with animals before, John. Uh, but at the same time, just recognizing how she is, I have a feeling I might be missing a little bit of coverage having to take her for a walk or whatnot, because... She, she can definitely get a little rambunctious. So I might be having to try to time my schedule to make sure I can get her a morning walk before noon kickoffs. Uh, so hopefully, she, you know, we get her a nice long walk in the morning and tire her out a bit so she can just snore through the rest of the day. Yeah, I don't have a dog, but I think that's a good call. I have a cat, and he, he likes to just lounge around all day no matter what. So it's really advantageous for sitting around and he's very encouraging when it comes to being in a vegetative state on college football Saturdays where I just sit in my recliner and watch football all day and drink beer he's totally on board um so I like that he typically I'll have a game on the tv and then I'll throw um my my ipad up on a stool next to the chair I sit in I'll try to watch two games at once he'll crawl up there sometimes and take a nap in the chair with me the only thing that I can say is difficult is him sleeping makes me sleepy. Uh, so sometimes I might nod off for a couple of minutes if a game's not particularly interesting at a period of time because he'll start snoring like that and it'll make me tired. Uh, but he always gets very excited at whatever we cook on college football Saturdays. He likes us to drop a little bit of whatever meat we have down for him to lap up. He's not a big vegetable eater, which is fine. Uh, but if you cook a good chicken or something like that, he's going to want any piece of that you got. That's the only. That's about the only thing that motivates him to get up and move around. So I can I can relate in many ways. Yeah, knowing my dog and the way she, especially any time I'm get the chance to grill out during the fall months, she's going to be standing there right next to me. She is the most dutiful statue you can possibly find when I have the grill fired up and. Uh, yeah, just the same way. She absolutely loves basically any meat you can throw down. Interestingly, one vegetable that we found that she absolutely loves is asparagus. 
I have absolutely no clue why. I mean, this is also a dog that likes to walk around our yard and eat grass. You know, I, I like to call her my little goat. So, you know, perhaps it just looks like really thick grass or something, and she absolutely loves the, like, astringency or something. Or, But, yeah, for some reason, that vegetable, she, she mouths down. My wife actually recently uh, got some... A flower arrangement ordered and she was cutting the stems and a couple of them fell on the floor and my dog started trying to eat them because they looked like <laughs> asparagus stems so yeah that that I'm definitely excited for because as anybody who's been listening regularly knows we'd love to talk about what we're cooking once we're into the season and what we're going to be tailgating with and, you know, this dog loves basically anything. Uh, I think her favorite still is whenever I make uh, homemade pizza dough and toss some pies. That dog loves pizza. So I might have to eventually make her one for her birthday or something. Just make a little pie with tons of meat piled up. Oh, yeah. That sounds, that sounds wonderful. And since her birthday falls in December, just like mine, we're getting right into... Actually, hers will fall usually, you know, depending on the calendar, probably right around Heisman weekend for Army-Navy game. So, not a bad not a bad way to wind up the regular season and, and start a new year. Gotta, gotta agree with that. But, yeah, it, 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 it's funny because, you know, for all the, the times I've been writing over the years, I did have a cat when I first started writing college football, and, and he was exactly like yours where, you know, he was an indoor-outdoor cat as well, so he had access to make his way outside, and half the time he'd be outside just going and trying to kill birds or something, and, you know, half the time he'd be sneaking back into the house trying to figure out what we're eating, and, uh, but interestingly, he wasn't much of a big beggar, so he didn't come eat very often. He wasn't, you know, he was the one that would try to lay in your lap as you're typing on the laptop covering the game. And he'd be the one who'd rest across your wrist so that you're kind of anchored in place. So that was that kind of cat. That was always interesting on football Saturdays. <laughs> yeah, nah, this one is a strictly indoor cat, and he's been spoiled from table scraps his entire life so whenever we're eating even if it's something like innocuous like a bowl of cereal he's always like hey i'm into that and it's like you don't eat cereal you moron yeah yeah this dog is the exact same way and she thinks she's a lap dog but you know as a 75 pound pit bull mix it's a little it, it she's less likely to lay across my arms than than the cat used to be so at least i got that going for me. So, yep, absolutely. On cue, my cat, while we're recording the podcast, like he likes to be. So, here, I'll give you a quick view. There it is. Oh, adorable cat, guys. <laughs> curled up right on the ground, just a peaceful and sleeping, probably just like he will be on college football Saturdays. So I'm often envious of how comfortable he can get at any random spot in the house. I've never been as comfortable as he is right now, laying in the middle of the floor, in my entire life. Aren't animals crazy that way? I love it. Well, before we sign off, John, any final thoughts you want to throw out there? No, I, it's starting to feel like college football season. Um, you know, I went to the grocery store the other day, and Athlon Sports' magazine was in the magazine aisle, and that just got me really, really happy. You know, I wasn't looking for it or anything. I hadn't, I hadn't even really thought about it with everything that was going on. And I happened to pass that section and I saw it, so I bought a copy. And it was just, I don't know, it's the first time in a while I felt relatively normal with everything going on in the world. So seeing that magazine up on the stands and coming home and flipping through the whole thing, spending the rest of my Monday just reading through that magazine, it really felt like everything was going to be okay for once. You know, that's always a good feeling and always tons of fun. And before we sign off, the only thing I want to say is, even though this feels like we're starting to return to normalcy, remain vigilant. You know, wear a mask when you go out. Continue to practice social distancing. Because the, the more we do this, the sooner we all get to stand in a stadium together again in 100% capacity or... 107% capacity as some stadiums seem to be. 
or if you're a max stadium for you know Tuesday night max and you know you can be at 18 percent capacity instead of five. But or Miami, or Miami. <laughs> but yeah, you know, keep being smart. That's all I want to say before we sign off is just keep being smart about this. You know, obviously there's there's a lot of unrest going on right now. You know, with the sport being as as dominated on rosters by people of color, I just want to say Black Lives Matter, and I appreciate people who are are out there protesting, but be as careful as you can. Wear your masks if you're going to do that. Wear your masks wherever you go. If you're going out in public, you know, it's a courtesy to everybody else. And college football fans, we're a huge community. But, you know, I think we're a community that's better when we're all there to to give shit to each other and whatnot. So let's look out for each other. Because the more we do that now, the sooner we get past this hurdle. On that note, thanks so much, everybody. Love having you all here with us. Until next Wednesday, thanks for tuning in to the Saturday Blitz podcast.